This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Great to have you with us. I am Helen Farmer. We were talking about the male contraceptive pill with Dr. Martin Moody. This is following a study on mice that could be available for men. Gentlemen, would you take the male pill? Ladies, would you trust your man to take it? We are our media lawyer, Taranish Mystery, on hand to answer all of your questions around intellectual property, scams, social media and cyber crimes. June Productions in the studio talking about their philosophy about educating children via the stage. Sharjah English School is using the curiosity approach to teach young children. What exactly is it? And what do us parents need to know about incorporating it at home? And we talked workplace bullying with a team from Harriet Watt University. Get ready for some expert advice. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Looking at men's health, although I have to say probably more family health if we're, if we're being truly accurate about it, because today, 2023, the male contraceptive pill is yet to materialise. And last month, research in mice identified a promising new target, a molecular switch that can stun sperm for two hours, rendering its taker temporarily infertile. So what do we need to know about this? Gentlemen, would you take this? Women... Would you encourage your partner to let us know? We've already had a number of, I find, quite amusing questions and comments on this topic. Joining us in studio to advise is Dr. Martin Moody, consultant neurological surgeon at King's College London here in Dubai. Let's start, Martin, if you don't mind, by establishing what's currently available when it comes to male contraceptive methods here in the UAE. Can you run us through them? Yeah, hi, Helen. First, uh, thanks very much for asking me along today. Very um, welcome. Uh, clearly, very much it's it's been more into a female field who, who who end up having to sort of deal with the, the contraceptive side. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> clearly, for the man, there's the sort of number one, probably most effective way. If it worked, would be abstinence. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also this sort of withdrawal or, or, or Vatican roulette um, and various you know, <laughs> the roulette. Um, uh, being a good Catholic, I, I can sort of uh, uh, say that I think, um, and also obviously other you know the barrier methods, condoms, um, and other things. And unfortunately, they're not very effective. Um, so, condoms kind of accuracy is what, about ninety eight percent efficient. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's up to that sort of level. But um, if people, you know, it splits, it doesn't work. You don't put it on. Don't, if you uh, don't put it on, it's it definitely not work. going to work. Or but you, if, or if you yeah, put it in improperly, properly, um, and so if it's used properly, it is it is effective. But it's when it doesn't work. Okay. When you intend to use it, but it, but um, for whatever whatever happens, and you don't, you, it, it just doesn't 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 work brilliantly. Um, the other abstinence and withdrawals. You can, um, unfortunately, being a man, you can easily be, be mistimed, um, misjudged. I think so. And of course, there's vasectomy as well, um, which is very popular in other parts of the world. Yeah. And here, we've already had a number of messages around that, which we'll we'll try to get to. But it's a bit of a, a bit of a grey area. What then about this latest piece of research, Doctor Moody? Um, I understand it's a pill, and as I said, it stuns sperm for two hours. So tell us a little bit about this test, this, this research process. Yeah, it's an absolutely fantastic piece of work because um, really what, what the um, people at, in, in uh, um, Cornell in, in New York um, did was they, they found the sort of sperms, if you like, Achilles heel or weak point. Um, and and the, the, the bit that the sperm have that doesn't affect other bits of the body. Okay. Um, and, and essentially what it is, is there's um, an enzyme, it's called SAC or uh, soluble adenylyne cyclase. How you appropriate. Don't, you don't have to remember that. <laughs> um, and by, by blocking the, uh, that enzyme, 
essentially you stop the sperm's uh, tail working. It just doesn't have the energy so to it's, do it. So it's completely immobilized. It's immobilized. It's like, I, I think of like kryptonite for sperm. And yeah. it's temporary. So it's, it's so yeah. I'm, just try, I'm just trying to think about how this would work in practice. It's a tablet that you would take, and then how long does it take to kick in, for want of a better phrase, and how long does the effect last? The uh, With mice, they've actually developed a number of, of um, different molecules that uh, inhibit the enzyme, which is, again, part, part of the great science that the, the team have done, and their potentials of develop, developing other molecules which can have uh, shorter or longer mm-hmm. um, effects. But currently, it, it seemed to work within about half an hour to an hour and had an effect that lasted for two, two and a half hours afterwards. Okay, um, interesting. So it is, it is variable. And this, again, this is only sort of trial, trial molecules in a sort of mouse model. Um, so potentially they'll be able to extend it. So before we get any excited messages on 4001, this isn't on the market for humans just yet. But I wanted to ask you, I guess... And I know you're not a gynecologist, but when we think about female contraceptive methods, they're much more hormone-based. Yes, yeah. So w- I wonder why, has, you know, has that been looked at in the past when it comes to men? Yes, it has. And, and unfortunately, the hormone uh, methods for men, whereas the hormones for women uh, are designed to stop um, ovulation, uh, because when, when women are born, they have all the eggs they have for life, whereas men produce, I think it's the region of 1,000 sperm a second. And when you ejaculate, you're looking at producing three, three, four hundred million, um, so huge numbers, and they're constantly being produced. Um, and it, and sperm take about a hundred days to mature. Okay. So it, take, it it takes that length for a hormone effect to have it. That's so interesting. Hormone you take now will potentially take a hundred days to lead to, to make you infertile as a man. Okay. And. When you stop it, potentially it will take a hundred days for that to plus. then at the other end. Okay, yeah. um, but presumably, and again, I'm not a doctor. There must be many drugs in the market that would have a side effect of infertility in men that might have been discovered over the years. What do we know about that, and perhaps why they haven't been put mainstream for this for this reason? Uh, I think the main, the main problem with um, drugs that cause infertility, classical ones, would be some chemotherapy agents. Mm. They're designed to to kill cancerous cells and, and cells that are turning over at a high rate. And very classically, because sperm cells turn over at a high rate, they are very susceptible to things like chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And it can that they're sort of poisoning everything. Um, and so there are lots of drugs that do do also affect sperm production as part of their, uh, as, a, as a side effect to their main action. Whereas the real um, beauty of this is that there are very few other areas that, that this enzyme works in. in Interesting. And it's um, so highly targeted. We're talking about male contraception this afternoon in light of new research to come out of a side of Cornell University in the state that stuns sperm for two hours. Now, this is in mice, we should be clear, but it's an interesting discussion in terms of men of the UAE, would you take a pill um, in order to become temporarily infertile? And women, how would you feel about your partner doing this? This content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Healthy Habits on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We're taking your questions, your comments when it comes to male fertility and indeed contraception ahead of a study that came out just a couple of weeks ago out of Cornell University in the States looking at a pill that when taken temporarily immobilises sperm making you infertile for a few hours. Gentlemen, would you take this? 
Women of the UAE, are you in favour? I did a very non-scientific poll on my Instagram stories and 84% of my followers saying they are in favour of a male contraceptive pill. And joining us in the studio to unpack a little bit more about the current options and answering your questions is consultant urological surgeon at King's College London, Dubai. Dr Martin Moody is with us. Are you surprised by just how in favour, I'm a very small sample, um, my Instagram followers are in terms of Men, men taking perhaps a little bit more responsibility for contraception. I, I, I think it's absolutely great. And um, it's kind of what I'd expect, actually. I think you clearly have a, a very sens- a, a sensible group of followers. I've got a very <laughs> predominantly female group of followers, uh, which, right. is prob- which is probably <laughs> what we should be pointing out. Um, going to the text line, number of you getting in touch on this. Bilal saying, interesting, it sounds like timing is crucial in more ways than one with this method. Yes, you'd need to be a bit of a forward planner. I would say yes. Usually, it's fairly obvious when 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 things might might happen. Go in that direction, but isn't that the same with the diaphragm, which was always really popular in the states as well? You know, just being mindful. Jen says, "My husband forgets where his keys are. There's no way I'd trust him to take this." Um, You mentioned. all the, all the kind of current male op- options, so abstinence, withdrawal, barred methods such as um, condoms and vasectomy as well. And we've had a, a message here saying, I'm looking into vasectomy, but would like a little bit more information about it um, in terms of possibility to reverse. Um, so can you explain a little bit? Because there are ways of undergoing that procedure that perhaps makes reversal easier. Is that right? Yes, yeah, and, and traditionally you used to uh, remove about a sort of centimetre of the vas, so we'd send it to check it was the right bit of tissue under the microscope uh, and, and produce more of a barrier for sperm to get through, and you'd then uh, double-tie both ends, um, uh, burn both ends, bury both ends, um, but even doing that, there's still about a, a 1 in 2 to 5,000 chance of, of the end spontaneously re- rejoining. Um so you can do it with, with with a less aggressive approach where you don't remove tissue, um, you don't burn the ends off, you tie the ends off um, and leave them relatively close to each other. So you were presumably increasing the risk of getting pregnant after a vasectomy, but also increasing yeah. the likelihood of being able to have a pregnancy should you decide to have it reversed. Yes. So it's and a so bit of a risky one. And, and I think you, you're, although we haven't been able to do proper... You know, Proper studies, the risk of uh, fertility, regaining fertility, is still very, very low. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably, um, you know, one in a thousand rather than one in two, th- one in two thousand to five thousand. Doctor Moody, so much is spoken about, and you touched on it yourself. You know, when a baby girl is born, she has every single egg that she's ever going to have in her ovaries, whereas men, as you said, you know, every every single day, those sperm supplies are replenished and replenished. Which leads me kind of to ask you a little bit about fertility when it comes to men, because so much is spoken about female fertility, you know, going off a cliff at 35 and quality of eggs. What about men? Because we've got some very famous examples of, you know, later in life fathers. But what about the quality of sperm? Um, what, what do, you know, dads or, you know, aspiring dads need to know about fathering children as they get older? I think, I think there, is, there is a general uh, decrease in both the sort of quality and the number of sperm as, as men get older. Um, but it is still possible to have to have kids, your, uh, kids as, as, as you get older. Um, if there's an underlying uh, fertility problem, then getting older will make that worse. Mm-hmm. So if you're a normal man, normal fertility uh, when you're younger, it's unlikely to drop off the cliff in, in, in the same way that women do. But if your fertility was marginal initially, then getting older can push you over that cliff. And lastly, before I let you get back to your clinic, got about a minute. What are some of the things that you can help patients with there at King's when it comes to urology? Uh, so a lot of the um, the type of problems we see at the moment, are men, uh, both men and women with uh, urinary tract infections, actually particularly women, 
because I think it's something that's, that, that's been very much ignored in the past mm-hmm. uh, because I think sometimes uh, doctors really haven't quite known what to do with women with recurrent urinary tract infections mm-hmm. but now we have you know, much better at, at uh, knowing what the causes are making you know, better investigations not just sending who, on your way with a pint of cranberry juice yeah absolutely not <laughs> and, and I deal with it in a much more sort of um, uh, sympathetic way and, and hope you to help a lot more people. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Really do appreciate it. Yes, I said, you can find Dr. Martin Moody there at King's College London, Dubai. He's a consultant neurological surgeon. If you want his details, just send me the word doctor. I'd be very happy to send you a link. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it very much indeed. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. We're talking media law on the show, and it's not just for people that work in media. If you post on social media or indeed intellectual property, there's all sorts of different aspects to this area of law. And to hold our hand and guide us through it is Taranish Mystery, part of the corporate and commercial practice at BSA Law Firm there in DIFC. Thank you for being with us today. How are you? Good, thank you, Ellen. How are you? I'm good. I hope you've had a coffee because this the good man, because this does tend to get a little bit busy. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the areas that you work in when it comes to media law in particular? Mm-hmm. Yep, sure. So at BSA, we've got uh, quite a big practice as a full service uh, leading law firm in the region. So we, in fact, represent uh, two of the biggest uh, social media influencer agencies, um, one French, one Italian, both market leaders. So we do have um, some experience in uh, dealing with the agencies as well as the influencers. Okay, well, we've had all sorts of questions in already, but I wanted to start purely selfishly because (laughs) you're an expert and I had a problem over the weekend. So I'm on Instagram as myself, um, if you want to follow me, underscore Helen Farmer, underscore. And I'm not verified. I haven't got that blue tick. I need to get around to applying for that, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I had a number of followers messaging me going, is this you? This account has just followed me. I just wanted to bring your attention to it. And when Mm -hmm. I looked, they'd blocked me. But it was basically an account that was set up using the same profile photo that I use. So that little avatar in the corner is exactly the same. Mm The account name was exactly the same apart from an extra A in Pharma. And it had a little pin saying official account, um, you know, contact uh, us for, you know, to to win prizes, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And they'd amassed in about a day about 700 followers. Um, So presumably got in touch with all of my followers and said Mm -hmm. and, and made it look like I was following a lot of people back. Yeah. And I was I just finished work on Saturday and I was like, oh, this is the last thing I need. For one, the admin, but two, I hate the thought of people being scammed or people think that I'm, you know, cheating someone or misrepresenting someone because it sounds like what they were doing was contacting people and saying, you've won a prize, you need to fill out this form in order to, you know, collect your winnings and then trying to get private data from people, including, I think, bank details and phone Mm -hmm. numbers. So I obviously said to everybody that got in touch, please don't engage. Please report this person. I can't because they blocked me and then put Mm -hmm. up a story saying this is not me. Please report. And a lot of people very kindly didn't. Thank you very much for that. So I don't really know what to do now, to be Mm -hmm. honest. I I trust it's been reported hopefully enough times to have brought attention to Instagram. But is there something that I need to, you know, continue a conversation around cybercrime and Dubai police because they're obviously trying to scam people out of money? What Mm -hmm. would your advice be? Yep. So um, practically speaking, the the quickest way to to deal with a situation like that is to first report it to the platform that the impersonation is happening on. So in this case, uh, Instagram, for example, they'd be the ones who ultimately have control over that account, or at least the quickest 
uh, form of control. Mm-hmm. So yeah, reporting into them enough times and enough of your followers would have probably done that. So Please that helps. <laughs> so so that certainly helps. Um, but if you find that it's not uh, making any progress, then then certainly contacting Dubai Police. Um, the Ministry of Economy has a way of reporting it as well on their website. Um, but Dubai Police is a good uh, source to to deal with matters like this as well. Well, it happened to me about about a year and a half ago, and I'd contacted the cybercrimes, and I have to say they got back to me within about half an hour. Mm-hmm. They'd WhatsApp me asking for screenshots of the account, yeah. and I still don't know. I think it was actually a company or an individual based in Turkey, so I think mm-hmm. that was actually quite limited in terms of how they could help on the ground here. But they went away. But yeah, I just want to say, people, please don't engage with these with these words that I cannot say. <laughs> um, and thank you again to everyone because it's just. It's so frustrating and I hate the thought of people just, you know, being being taken advantage of, I suppose. We've got lots of questions for you this afternoon. Sir. Yeah. Um, so we are going to get through as many as possible. Before we go to the text line, though, are there any new laws that we need to be aware of as residents living in Dubai when it comes to, uh, well, the commercial aspect that you look after? Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of the commercial aspect, when looking at sort of social media and, and influencers, for example, um, there, there's a host of laws that, that would apply, for example, uh Consumer protection, commercial transactions, um, all of these have been in place for a while. Uh, Things to watch out for as in the form of updates usually revolve around circulars and and media announcements. Um, So so these are good things to keep in touch with. Um, For example, uh, with certain larger scale influences, if they have followings in different countries, Mm -hmm. tax could play uh, an important part of that as well. So that's it's it's something something I'm worried about. (laughs) So, so it's it's usually something that that depends on a case by case basis where certain laws could apply and certain others may not be as relevant. Can we talk defamation? If you wouldn't mind talking us through it as a concept and what we need to know, because we've had a message here saying, very quick question: Does one need a lawyer to file a criminal defamation case? Thank you. What exactly mm-hmm. is defamation, and can you give us some examples of it? Yep. So uh, defamation is essentially um, anything slanderous, anything negative published and published means distributed to a third party so for example me saying something bad about you to you personally Mm -hmm. that wouldn't count it would be me saying it to someone else or publishing it in any other form of publicly available media Um, and essentially the the way that works is you don't necessarily need a lawyer but if you're not familiar with the legal system if you're not familiar with the steps the reporting what kind of information you need what evidence you need to make with that report it usually helps to to have a lawyer guide you through those steps. Can I ask then, because this must be a bit of a grey area in so many cases, because you're entitled to have an opinion. And I'm thinking about perhaps restaurant reviewers and bloggers in particular Mm -hmm. who might go to a cafe or restaurant and have a really pretty terrible time in their opinion. Mm -hmm. So what right do they have then to publish and say, you know, I would give it two out of ten, the, you know, chips were soggy and my steak was overcooked. Mm -hmm. And the restaurant gets back and said, this is defamation. Yeah. Now, this uh, often ends up being a sort of practical aspect of it. Um, If it depends on the specific nature of the feedback as well. For example, saying that the chips were soggy um, may not be a personal defamatory remark against uh, an individual person or the restaurant itself. And the waiter was the waiter was horrible. Yeah. (laughs) Again, these are sort of smaller issues in relation to service. Um, and restaurants often tend to invite reviews and, and invite feedback. They, as you may have seen, they also have an option to respond to, to 
to customer reviews as well. So if it's an extreme situation, then there is a possibility that you know it could approach defamation. But something like restaurant reviews, it's not really something yeah, that. Yeah, but would a lot apply. of bloggers have a lot of reach. You know, mm-hmm. when we think about how people yeah. consume information now, if that's mm-hmm. someone that might put off potentially fifty thousand people from going to a restaurant, right. surely that manager would have the right to say, or the owner, mm-hmm. well, you know, this is this is you know. Yeah. What's the difference between slander and defamation then? Tell us that. Um, so defamation is a sort of uh, broader umbrella term uh, on, on the topic. You have slander, you have libel, which depend on the form of communication. Okay, For example, medium. it could be spoken, written, uh, d- depends on the medium. Yeah. Okay, I'll be very but, careful on the radio. Yeah, but 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 as you mentioned, with, with uh, influencers, if they sort of go in and make comments about specific restaurants or, or certain defamatory aspects that could attract more attention. It could essentially poke the restaurant to say, let's focus on this one. Let's try and claim some damages. We're having a special focus on media law today and many of you getting in touch with questions. And I know when I say media law, you're probably thinking journalists and content creators and yes that's part of it but it's also every single person that posts on social media I'm guessing that's probably you to help guide us through this is Taranush Mystery who's part of the corporate and commercial practice at BSA law firm Master Chair is saying so if someone shares a screenshot of a news article quoting an influential person on social media with their own commentary on it not necessarily favorable does this become a situation where one should be concerned about potential for a defamation claim yeah so um, th- that's a good question. And uh, being um, the sort of loyally response, should you be concerned? Yes. Um, essentially, it comes down to whatever you post on your account, you are responsible for. Mm-hmm. Um, so it depends on the extent to which you, uh, of the words, how sort of critical they are, um, whether they're based on, on essentially facts. Fact. or yeah. So it, it can be a sort of gray area. And unfortunately, it it depends is the answer, but it is something to be concerned about. And a fault message saying, what about writing quote unquote negative reviews on official platforms like Google and Zomato so the restaurant or service improves, mm-hmm. which I think is, is somewhat different to posting it on yeah. your own channels potentially. Mm-hmm. What do you yeah, think? So, so something like that is, is, is not a bad thing to do, especially if it's constructive criticism. Um, restaurants or other service providers that, that ask you to review their services on Google and, and Zomato. They would love for you to do that as long as it's it, as long as it it's sort of it's constructive or or it makes them look good. So okay. it, it's not something you should use to personally attack anyone there. I wanted to ask you about spreading false rumors, and this mm-hmm. has been in the news a number of times over the last year. Can you yeah. explain a little bit about what might come under that, and just how seriously this mm-hmm. is taken in the UAE, Tarnish? Yeah, so th- this is a topic that has uh, gained quite a bit of media attention uh, in the last few years. We saw it pick pick up quite a bit with COVID. Absolutely, that time of uncertainty yeah. was just an absolute mm-hmm. wildfire for false rumors. Exactly. So, so it's, it's something that you definitely have to be careful of when when posting. It's 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 always worth double checking and not just relying on one article or someone just, on Facebook. A, exactly. Debbie Facebook in the knowledge. spring says, yeah, no. WhatsApp <laughs> knowledge, things like that. It's it's not the best source to rely on. So it, de- definitely do some homework before you post something that could be controversial or false. How seriously are cyber crimes taken here in the UAE when we're talking about fines and, mm-hmm. and you know, 
and bigger. Yeah. What, what are some of the things we really need to be tuned mm-hmm. into? So cybercrimes uh, is definitely something that, that is, is focused on. Um, as, as we started the show off with, uh, you mentioned that uh, in your previous experience, the, the cybercrimes unit of the yeah. Dubai police incredibly were responsive. incredibly responsive. So th- this is something that they take uh, seriously. They have the, technolo- the technological means to, to address such problems. And they're quite proactive about it. So in terms of fines and punishment, it's it's not something that that goes uh, yeah, it doesn't go easy. unnoticed. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. No name on this message saying I am repeatedly tagged in social media posts without my consent. Mm-hmm. Is this a crime? Um, again, unfortunately, it's it not depends. a specific yes or no. But, but it's it's a case of is it one person that's that's harassing you? Is it multiple people? Because who? is essentially doing this. Well, let's follow up with another yeah. message on this topic, actually. Again, and on them saying, I'm being harassed by my ex on Instagram. Mm-hmm. He comments on all my posts, tags me in comments on mutual friends' posts. Mm-hmm. I've reported him multiple times. Is he breaking the law? It's harassment in some form. Y- yes. Uh, so th- this kind of situation should definitely be reported to, to Instagram. If, uh, if it doesn't go away, that's, again, something to, to discuss with a lawyer, just to have a look at the extent of of the of the harassment if mm-hmm. it's enough to to proceed with a police complaint uh, a lawyer should be able to help you with that quite easily um let's talk influencers um because an awful lot of money being kicked around an awful lot of people taking money when they haven't got a license so mm-hmm. i wanted to ask you at what point should somebody in social media make sure they're covered Legally, mm-hmm. and what do they need to do in order to make sure that they're going, you know, operating within the law mm-hmm. right so uh, obtaining this uh social media marketing or influencer license. Um, the process itself is quite straightforward. It's a simple application um, with the National Media Council, which is now under the uh, Ministry of Culture and yes. Youth. So it's, um, but when someone needs it is is somewhat, it's not a clearly defined uh, role. It's something more that's of a regular occurrence for paid uh, consideration. So, for example, it could be money, it could be free products, mm-hmm. it could be free services, um, a free night in a hotel on a regular basis, for example. Um, anything that happens regular and in exchange for for value, that's when you when you need the license. And not only do you need the National Media Council license, you also need a business license in order to take money. Uh, exactly. So, uh, the the National Media Council they highly recommend that. Uh, anyone who's seeking uh, a license from them has a, a, a separate license as well, just mm-hmm. to sort of manage personal liability. And that's something any lawyer would recommend as well. Um, so ideally, you'd want to have a business set up and then have the business apply for the NMC license. Okay, that's a, that's a good good order of kind of looking at things. I think a lot of companies now will require this paperwork before actually paying any money mm-hmm. to an influencer. Sure. So if you've got any questions on that, please don't hesitate to get in touch um, because I think, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a wild west at the minute in terms of, you know, regulation or lack of, you know, in, in the UK, for example, if an influencer is posting, they need to do hashtag ad, hashtag mm-hmm. collaboration right. or, you know, paid post tags and things like that. And mm-hmm. the UA isn't as tight in terms of regulations it, it, it has actually come come about where it's not saying that you specifically have to mention hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored, but it has to be clear. So mm-hmm. you do have to mention that it's a, a collaboration it's, of sorts. It, it's a collaboration or, or that, a that it's sponsored or that it's an ad. It's 
It's a media law special this afternoon and many of you getting in touch with questions and seeking some clarity, especially around the topic of defamation. Taranish Mystery is with us today to guide us through this topic. He's the part of the commercial and corporate practice at BSA Law Firm there in DIFC and you can contact us in the usual ways. The text line is SMS 4001. You've got the ARN Play app and the WhatsApp too. Um, let's get a little bit more clarity for listeners this afternoon. Message here saying, is posting one's personal negative opinion on a corporate portal or Facebook page defamatory or insulting, e.g. highlighting incorrect claims or blatant lies, for, for lack of a better description. So it, I guess it's kind of giving feedback on customer service or offering in a public place. Mm-hmm. So if it's, if it's something that's posted just as your feedback, that, that wouldn't necessarily cause too much concern. Uh, again, it depends on the extent to which you go, if you do something personal or if it's not very relevant to uh, to the service that was Because provided. it's a tricky one, because sometimes when you're trying to get a, a company to engage with you, mm-hmm. the common advice is go to Twitter. Like the, you're going right. to get their attention on Twitter. Mm-hmm. There's a way of doing that, which is not necessarily going all guns blazing and saying, you know, you guys are yeah. the worst, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. More like... I need to talk to you about a situation. Please engage with me. Right, exactly. And and, and that's one of the things where you should have uh, sort of flared tempers calmed down before you go and post something on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's go to the text line. We've had a couple of um, creators getting in touch. Faraz is a video creator saying, on some of my videos, I've added commercial music, music not from a music library. So far, it hasn't been taken down. Are we allowed to use any kind of music and add it to our videos and post it on YouTube or social media? Mm -hmm. So essentially, this becomes uh, a question dealing with copyright. And just as a brief background, copyright is something that arises automatically. So if you have a creator who's created something new, for example, music, that they just get the uh, automatic protection of copyright. Now, it could so happen that a record label or some other company who's hired them has signed away or, yeah, or the acquired rights. The, their mm. rights, essentially. Yep. So it, it also depends what permissions were granted. We always recommend that anyone who's posting uh, music, for example, using other other people's music, gets permission. Mm. Uh, not just gives credit, but actually gets permission. Yeah. I say this as the sister of a musician who my brother's music has been used on... I don't know, sports TV, used mm-hmm. in movies, blah, blah, blah. And they get paid very, very nicely for right. this, probably more than, you know, touring a lot of the time. So he obviously feels very, very strongly about this. But I feel like, you know, he's in the UK and mm-hmm. they sell their rights for, I don't know, The Only Way is Essex or, you know, BBC Sport or whatever it might be. But I don't think that's so much the case in this part of the world to the same extent. And Albie's been in touch saying, I'm in the music industry here and would like to know what's being done about copyright protection. In other countries, artists are paid if their music's played on radio or TV or even in restaurants. This is very true. Mm -hmm. Shops, I heard my brother's band played in Gap once. That was very exciting. Um, But that isn't the case. So is that going to change soon? Uh, So legally speaking, it it should be the case. Um, Any artist that's sort of heard their music playing in another commercial establishment, um, should reach out. They they should be getting uh, credit, if not at least money for it, because sure. it, it's it's their work after all. Um, again, it's a question of copyright, and as long as they hold the rights to their to their work, they have the right to to claim either damages if it's been if it's already been playing without their their knowledge mm-hmm. or the, or their consent, and even moving forward to to claim royalties for for using their work. Um, so again, th- this is the kind of situation where a lawyer can help you approach that particular organization and and 
find the best way forward. What about a message here, um, no name saying, is it legal to download songs from YouTube? I assume that artists now make music from downloads and views on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? I know what you're going to say. It um, depends. Well, it, it's a little bit more complicated <laughs> in this situation because with, uh, with with YouTube, you're downloading not just from a third party, but from YouTube themselves. Mm -hmm. So, and the person who's posted could you, to YouTube could be the individual creator. It could be a record label. So it depends who has the rights, mm -hmm. and it also depends for what. Uh, purpose you've downloaded it. Yeah, example, if you're using it if, for, for you know for monetary purposes. Yeah, if it's just for listening, yeah. I mean, we're not we're not encouraging you to do that. But just saying, mm -hmm. if you're not actually looking to monetize that music right. and, and how you use it, that's very mm -hmm. different to you, you know, using it for an advert to promote your you know, exactly whatever. Okay, um, coming back to influencers, um, a message here saying who is li liable for a branded post if deemed illegal? Is it the brand or the influencer? Good question. Mm -hmm. So this was uh, something I think we briefly mentioned earlier. Um, the NMC's regulations, in fact, have quite a brief uh, statement given that it's a regulation saying that the account holder shall be responsible for the content of their account. That makes sense. You're um, the publisher, so, effectively. So whoever's posting it to their account uh, is liable. Now, if you're appearing on someone else's account, they would be liable. But ultimately, if you're speaking something, if you're saying something mm -hmm. in that post, mm -hmm. that's also something you should be concerned about. So okay. it's but that's often something that can be mitigated by just preparing in advance, knowing what you're saying not agreeing not, to say anything. Yeah, not being caught out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and Kia saying, great timing. I heard that it costs 15,000 dirhams for an influencer license. I've been approached by a company to promote a jewellery line. It's a one-off. They're paying me less than 5,000 dirhams for this. So can I get away with not having a license? It's the first time being approached by a company that's happy to pay me. And it isn't something I would do regularly as I'm not an influencer by profession. I just like this brand and I'm happy to collaborate with them on this. Mm -hmm. So the influencer license, as we had mentioned earlier, it's something that that needs regular commercial activity. Mm -hmm. um, so in this case, it's not regular. Um, but if you wish to protect Happened yourself... To define regular, though. It, exactly. That, that, that becomes the issue. So um, if you see yourself doing that more and more in the future, then it's it's certainly worth getting a license. Yeah, um, and 5,000 dirhams here or there gets pretty enticing. Right, exactly. So, so then for a one-off, it's more a sort of just a one-time transaction. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that may require a license. Okay. Um, and we, Keep we, moving forward. We yeah. talked earlier about the kind of the regulations and the fault measures and that saying, are influencers here legally ob obligated to mention if their posts are sponsored? And what happens if it's not disclosed? Mm -hmm. So the, the regulations are clear that uh, any sponsored uh, or paid promotion does need to mention that it is uh, sponsored or that it's being made How in collaboration. How you do that, I think, is, is where the grey yeah. area lies. So so we've seen, uh, and I'm, I'm sure many people have seen Instagram posts which always mention the hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored. So it, it depends on the media. For example, if you're doing it on YouTube, you can mention it in the video uh, that this is a paid uh, segment. But then you also get people being like, I'm working with blah, blah, right. blah. And, right. you know, you can kind mm -hmm. of interpret that as I'm being yeah. paid to say this. Mm -hmm. so, the, so the regulations don't prescribe a specific wording uh, as long as it's made clear. You don't want to be misleading anyone. I would it's, also say that a lot of brands want this to be clear as well. You exactly. know, it's, it's in yeah. their interest as well mm -hmm. for that to be disclosed in in some form whether right. that and also a lot of the platforms now are making it easier by having this you know collaboration tag exactly. or part a paid partnership mm -hmm. yeah. kind of understanding <sighs> this is a lot 
It is. <laughs> this is a lot. What's keeping you busiest at the minute there at BSA when it comes to media law in particular? Are you noticing any kind of trends or anything that's kind of blowing up a little bit? Uh, so we have seen the the media influencer license pick up quite a bit. Um, of course, working with uh, large agencies as well, we mm-hmm. get requests that have a wide range of, of uh, complexity. We have uh, requests as simple as, for example, help us find a specific bank because the influencer doesn't want to do it themselves. Uh, or... Okay something as complicated as cross-border tax queries because you have a million followers, for example, in France, and the French authorities are saying, you're earning this money from here. Yeah, we want a slice so of this pie. Pay us tax there. Let's let's finish with one yeah. last question. Let's see we can, this is from Belle saying, I'm about to give birth. And I don't think this is a legal question. It's a moral question, but mm-hmm. I'm keen to get your take on it. Belle says, I'm about to give birth and my family-in-law are very active on Facebook and social media. I feel like privacy is very important. I don't like the idea of my baby being all over social media. Am I being unreasonable to ask my family not to post pictures um, so they can decide for themselves when they're older? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no legal guidelines on this this is this is a family discussion th- this such. is yeah th- this is one of those areas where you know you're not being unreasonable at all of course it's, not it's your baby it's it's uh, your private life um it's it's something to discuss with them be upfront about be clear about it because you don't want to appear weak and then have yeah, it posted and, have and worry about oh could you please take it down yeah it's it's something that can be sort of nipped in the bud before the, the problem arises. I quite agree. And Belle, all the very best with the new edition. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you. Helen. Really, really do appreciate it. We've had for the last hour in our legal clinic, Tavnish Mystery, who's part of the corporate and commercial practice there at BSA Law Firm. If you want his details, just send me the word law and I will send you a link. Catch you very soon, no doubt. Calling all parents, we are blending entertainment and education this afternoon with June Productions. as the only UA-based professional theatre company. They write bespoke shows, focusing on theatre in education for local and international children who call the UAE home. The founders are former stage professionals from the UK turned passionate educators here in Dubai. And today one of the directors is with us, um, Emma, joining us, one of three directors at June Productions. I want to know a little bit more about how this idea came about and I guess... Where, what's the origin story of June? It's, um, it's a really interesting one, actually, Helen, and it's, it's one that I really love to talk about because uh, it, it guides our pathway. Um, as you mentioned, we are all professional performers, so we've worked in the West End, on cruise ships, we've done UK touring uh, productions, lots and lots of stuff. Um, and when we moved out here with our families, so I have children, lots of uh, us have children in the company, um, we were working in schools, we were working in the classroom with children as performing arts specialist teachers Mm -hmm. and what we realized quite quickly actually is that the children in the UAE these international children they have this incredibly unique experience living here you'll never meet a child quite like a UAE child you know that grows up in this situation Um, and what, what they grow up being is these incredibly empathetic these incredibly resilient um sort of engaged young people who have their heart in two places Mm, truly global citizens yeah so they have their heart at home wherever their home home is and then they have their heart here as well um you know and and they're curious little learners because of that because of the environment that they grow up in here Mm. and what we really felt when we were in the classroom with these children working with performance is that actually 
It's really important that these children see themselves represented in a story that is relevant to them. Mm -hmm. So rather than, you know, a, a story that they read that exists somewhere else in the world, that actually these international children that have this very specific experience see diverse representation on stage and they see their experiences reflected back at them. Mm -hmm. um, and that what they learn through the shows that we're putting on feels tangible I was it just feels about to like say, can grab it much more relatable and therefore actionable because some of the stories and themes you have are around education although the children probably don't even realize it at the time that's the idea <laughs> how do you work then with teachers and making sure the shows are tied in I guess to curriculum or hot topics in the UAE well, that's that's something that we've actually we, we, we learn all the time and we really try to work with the teachers for the teachers. Mm -hmm. Something that's great about the UAE is that we're very united on on what we are teaching. So you've got the UAE moral and social curriculum, which is, is dropped right on top of all of our shows. So we really, really support that. You've got the national agenda, which is taught in all of the schools as well. So, you know, there, there are qualities of this country that we are really trying to infuse in all of the schools. Mm -hmm. um, so we're really passionate about making sure that the teachers feel supported in what they're doing. So whether that might be that they're teaching heritage, whether they're teaching sustainability, whether they are um, looking at something specific about, you know, the growth of the UAE or looking at things like perseverance, tolerance, uh, inspiring themselves. So isn't that lovely then that you've got the adaptive, you know, adaptability, you know, you've got the speed and able to write something that feels relevant in in that time because I think that is a big barrier for lots of children it's seeing something that might be playing out on a stage in a country they've never heard of or from a time that you know doesn't feel relatable to them so it's, it's removing that abstract and making things come alive right in front of them you mentioned sustainability there and your latest production is about exactly that change makers why did you want to focus on that in particular I think with it being the year of sustainability that was always going to be one of our focuses but um, I'm actually a mum of two little girls and we have this this word thrown around, sustainability, sustainability. You know, I'm even just sitting in the waiting room, I heard it three, four, five times. You know, every single school in the UAE is trying to make sure that they are moving towards a greener future, mm -hmm. that we are actually making efforts. Everywhere we go, we see it. You know, there's real efforts being made. Absolutely. How do we make sustainability cool and for fun. school and fun? <laughs> How do we make that word, sustainability, feel like something that children want to get involved in? And how do we do that at the same time as not spreading fear? Absolutely. You know, because there's always this message of, oh, the, the earth is in trouble. There is too much of this and too much of that. And actually, what we need to do is give them hope. We need to give them empowerment. And Absolutely. We, you know, we need to spread that message that they are the change makers. Mm -hmm. I listened to a podcast just the other day with a professor in the UK who was saying, you know, this is not a time to be fearful. It's a time to be forceful and take take positive steps and children and believe me my kids I've got two daughters as well who they'll they'll take something at school and bring it straight home Absolutely. and tell us tell us all about it and sometimes they're the ones that are being a bit scaremongery mummy did you know mm, you know the, yeah. the orangutans you're not thinking about the orangutans mummy um so I think by getting them at this age is absolutely crucial and it sounds like you're doing it in exactly the right way so tell us a little bit about the cast and some of the messages that they're conveying on the stage so we love our cast. We could talk for hours about them. They are an absolute family. They're incredible. Without giving too much away about the story, because it's all sort of lots of surprises, we've got four cast members and they play various characters in the show. One of the lead characters is called Professor Scrumpo and he's this kind of exciting professor that's willing to go anywhere and do anything. And he has these 
steamonauts, we call them, and they are eco-heroes. Um, and the idea is that anyone can be a steamonaut. You could be a steamonaut, I could be a steamonaut. You know, our FS1, FS2 children, they can be steamonauts too. Um, so we go back and forward in time with our lovable cast. We've got Pippa, little girl, who's recently moved to the UAE. We've got Glitch, who's lived here all of her life, but she's from somewhere else. We never say where, because it could be anywhere. Um, she's a little a little bookworm. She knows everything. She loves everything. Knowledge is her superpower. Um, and we've got Karim, who is, is, is an Emirati. He's supposed to represent the people that, that live here. You know, this is really, truly their home. And they're the best of friends. You know, they're the best of friends and they do everything together. They travel back and forward in time, learning, growing. And by the end of it, we've learned about the SDGs, so Sustainable Development Goals, which can sound scary. Actually not. They're pretty cool. We learn about the small changes that we can make every day mm -hmm. to be the change makers. Um, and we really learn, I think, the overarching theme of the story is really about believing in yourself and believing that you can make a difference. Absolutely. Just how impactful the actions mm. of one person or one family can be. number of messages for you um, as well as with us this afternoon from June Productions. Um, Aid saying, where can we see the productions? Which has preempted my next question. So you are working with schools and going into schools. So for any parents listening today who would love to see Changemakers, we're going to talk about some of the other productions as well. How, how does that happen? How do you kind of connect the dots, I guess, Emma? Well, so at the moment we're talking directly with schools so we email teachers you know 500 600 emails sent out every three or four days to say would you like us to come into the school this is what we're doing this is what you need to do um the best thing that we can do to get into schools is word of mouth so parents you know spreading the word saying i heard about this show this is what they're doing for our kids this is how we get it so at the moment we are predominantly in schools but we are looking to branch out all over so we're looking to really make sure that every single child in the uae gets to access this we feel passionately that it should should be available to every child. Um, Instagram, lots of information on there. It's June UAE. If you can't grab that right now, just send me the word theatre. I'll send you the link. Um, Julie saying, of all the activities my three adult daughters were exposed to, drama had the greatest impact on them in the real world. Tell us a little bit about that. And I guess that's watching theatre, but also perhaps getting on the stage. Where do you feel like the real benefits lie, Emma? It is a completely, I could talk about this forever, I'm super passionate about it, drama and, and being able to emote and being able to be um, empathetic via drama mm -hmm. is one of the most transferable skills that we can have as, as human beings. Being able to make sure that you are able to express your emotions and listen to somebody else's emotions and, and respond to that is, is super important for all of us. And I think especially in the wake of, I know we're still talking about COVID, but I think after that time where we were in masks and we were Absolutely. shut at home, you know, giving children the, the tools that they need to communicate is vital and drama is a super fun way to do it and kids are like electricity I always say this when I'm teaching them kids are like electricity they will take the easiest route to learn so if you give them the easiest route to learn whether that be role play whether that be drama watching a show like our shows where they get to see themselves on stage children will take that route and if you can ignite a spark via that if you can give them a story give them an activity give them a role play in a workshop they will take that route and they will sponge it in and they love it. You give me goosebumps. Now, kids, as we know, from picky eaters to shuffling bottoms while watching can be really tough critics. What's the, what's the response been like from some of your young viewers? It's incredible. I, you know, our cast is absolutely fantastic. So we've got loads of moments in the show where the whole audience stand up and they get involved in some physical games. We make sure we've got robots, we've got dinosaurs, we've got time travel, we've got clap-along sequences, we've got sing-along parts. 
we're really, really careful to make sure that there's no moment in the show where we lose any member of the audience. Mm -hmm. Because look, these kids, you know, they'll start thinking about what's in their lunchbox if you lose them. So we have to keep grabbing them back in. You know, everybody stand up. Let's all be as tall as the Burj Khalifa. You know, everybody stand up. Let's clap and make sure we believe in ourselves. It's really, really about making the audience feel like they're part of the story. They're on stage with us. They're in the adventure. We've had a lot of people asking for your details, which is lovely. So if you do want to find out more about June Productions, just drop a message saying theatre on 4001. I'll happily send you their Instagram so you can find out more. Um, You've also got another show Unstoppable Me, it's been going since last year. Uh, can you tell us, Emma, a little bit about that and the message from that show? Unstoppable Me is our baby. <laughs> I absolutely Aww. love it. The whole idea of Unstoppable Me is that we we learn to believe in our infinite potential as every single human being has infinite potential and that we do that in the in in the country that we live in so we learn about our heritage here in the UAE we learn about some of the values and the visions that the UAE has for our children you know that idea of today for tomorrow we talk mm. about a lot um, and making sure that we feel proud of where we come from and proud of the fact, like I said earlier, our hearts are in two places. You know, your heart can be in the UK, your heart can be in New Zealand. It can also be here. and We can be part of this sort of growing vision, this ever-moving, ever-changing vehicle here and, and, you know, really believe in ourselves. Oh, it makes me want to go back to school. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for really, having me, really Helen. appreciate it. I think raising some incredibly valuable topics there, both drama but also values and education and bringing things to life. As I said, um, if anyone wants to contact Emma and the team there at June, you can get in touch with me. You can check them, of course, on Instagram. It is June Productions. It's at June UAE. Or send me the word theatre and I will send it your way. Get back to probably... Some more very excited children to see your production summer. Thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you, Helen. Talking education this afternoon, a different process, a different approach, one that's called the curiosity approach. Many different ways to teach children, of course, and many schools across the world, specifically in the UK, are accredited with the curiosity approach. But Sharjah English School is the first here in the UAE. So what's it all about and what can we as parents be learning from it in order to better interact and educate our children at home? We're joined now by Siobhan Brady, Vice Principal and Head of Primary at Sharjah English School. And Eve Johnson's with us. She's the Foundation Stage 1 lead and teacher. Thank you both for being with us this afternoon. Siobhan, I'd love it if you wouldn't mind in educating us on this education process. What is the curiosity approach all about? What is the the origin story for that in terms of the problems it was looking to address? We began our journey with the curiosity approach around five years ago. Our school is very heavily focused on research in researching the very best that will inform and ensure that we're moving our teaching and learning forward. What we were aware of and it was essential for us to move forward on was that product of our early years classrooms was becoming a key focus rather than the key processes that one needs to develop in the zero five age range. So fostering that love of learning from the very outset. Absolutely. What we were investigating was how we as the facilitator in the child's environment could move each individual child forward by ensuring that we weren't focused on the end product, Mm -hmm. but rather every child's step on their journey to the EYFS goal. And so our research, we've looked across many philosophies in early years, education and curiosity approach is essentially the very, very best of Steiner, 
Montessori, all the very best pedagogical studies and developments in education. So we're looking at children being pilots of their own play. So play-based approach, child-led approach. And, you know, Eve, this ties in so nicely with the age group that you teach with. Um, Tell us a little bit about some of the ways it's implemented in and out of the classroom. (laughs) So our environments, they are a home-from-home environment. So you will see sofas, chairs, lamps, rugs. Children are able to make links with their home at home and the resources that we have as well. Mm -hmm. We use something called intelligent resources, which are recycled materials they're from second hand shops for example one of the popular ones in my environment would be tin cans <laughs> so they offer a different sound a different weight different sizes they roll they could be a drum they could be a wheel if you have a plastic police car it's just a plastic police car however our resources they offer an open-ended experience for the children that encourages imagination I love the sound of this, especially when I say this as a parent of younger kids, older kids rather than, than what you have, Eve, is that I feel like we're competing with screens an awful lot. And Siobhan, I wondered how you kind of balance that because I'm not demonising screen time in any shape or form because, my goodness, we know we need it and they're going to need it in the future. But um, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how the Curiosity Approach you know, works with this in, in 2023. I think within the classroom environment, Eve will be the very best to answer this one. Yep, so we are in a technological age, as you say, where most children, they have access to a device, whether it's theirs or somebody else, Mm -hmm. and their time is increasing on those, and often it's entertainment. However, we know that the theory Montessori, Reggio, as Srivore mentioned, is for play, that children learn best through play. So we're just trying to take it to what's best for the children. So we don't necessarily have a focus on devices. We do have them in our environment. We have our interactive boards that might have music on in the background or something that might spark imagination. Mm -hmm. However, our main focus would be play because if children are learning through their own interests, that is a meaningful experience that will last with them. Siobhan, in your kind of time as an educator, do you feel like children have changed in in the way they learn or the number of distractions, their level of creativity? I think what I've um, observed over, you know, my years in education is very much nowadays we have a tendency to overschedule our children's lives. Absolutely I think it is essential that we begin to pare back. Our children do not need a timetable of events for every part of their day. I believe, and SES firmly believes, that it's important for a child to be responsible for their own investigations, their own communication, and every element of their life. And so for us, it is essential that when we give our earliest children a learning opportunity, it's engagement. Mm. It's about not requiring a painting club or a dance club or a sport club. What children nowadays in our experience require is they need to be able to engage, to be able to look at an adult, for an adult to be an active listener in their child's... See, I hear this and I know what you're saying. I 100% do. But I'm saying this as like a really, really busy working mum of two. And I haven't got the time with them, unfortunately. I think a lot of people listening today will go, well, they go to these clubs because otherwise they'll be sitting at home with a nanny perhaps for four or five hours in the afternoon. And that's why we do it. So I I just want to kind of hear that for anyone listening today. I would love 
to have three hours of play with my kids every day. I would, I would. I mean, I also love my job, so there is a balance to be struck there. So perhaps it's, and I think this quality and quantity thing is really important as well. So I'm wondering then, Eve, if you can talk just a little bit about how we can make this time count and incorporate some of the curiosity approaches, ideas and ideologies, um, whether that's through equipment or lack of equipment. What you know, you must be educating some parents about this as well. <laughs> We just have to keep in mind that we're trying to create creators, not consumers. Oh, I like that. You probably know from your own children that when you've bought them a toy or something, they often prefer the box. Mm -hmm. So I suppose <laughs> it's having those things in your environment that do offer children the opportunity to explore awe and wonder, allow them to explore the resources that you use in your home, mm -hmm. not um, toys necessarily they have access i think there are different types of toys aren't there like yeah. there's the toy that as you say that might be battery powered and has one outcome or there is you use the tin can example earlier is yeah. there, any, is there anything you think would be really useful for parents to perhaps bring into the home that can encourage this open-ended play and curiosity well we have a massive um um i'm going to step in and say yeah. things like the wooden block yeah. The natural wooden block, resources such as that, as Eve mentioned earlier, they can have such a multi-purpose in developing imagination and creation and allowing communication to develop. Mm -hmm. So it's about having items that can essentially be anything can be used, can be built with, can be ensure that each child is allowed to develop a communication and develop a conversation with another child or an adult. So um, nothing... There's nothing to be said that plastic, such as Lego, there are elements of plastic that are, we're not saying <laughs> chuck out all your plastic. What we're saying is, you know, be mindful of overbuying resources for your child and, mm -hmm. you know, pair it back. What do they enjoy? A piece of paper, a, a a packet of crayons, they can take the child anywhere. I think there's also a lot to be said for putting toys kind of in rotation as well, because yeah. you tend to get blind to certain things and being like, okay, well, I've seen that, you know, for the last six months. And But putting it away and then bringing it out as if it's new <laughs> a few months later can, can make a massive difference. What's it been like, lastly, Siobhan, in terms of working with parents there at Charging the School to make sure that they're on board with some of the philosophies of the curiosity approach? It has taken a significant amount of conversations and allowing our parents into our setting. We do play and stays where we get our parents to come and work alongside us to see the exposure that we allow our children to have. Our facilitators in EVE and our excellent ones across Foundation 1 and 2, they ensure that they are getting into the environment. They are getting our parents to understand that it's a process about communicating the journey not we all are heavily focused on the academics required and Sharjah English School is very academic however we also understand that the biggest success we can give our children is confidence strong communication skills and the desire and want to have awe and wonder. Yeah, I think that's when kids learn the best, when they're feeling safe and secure and inspired. And thank you so much for coming in and kind of opening our eyes. For anyone that wants to learn a little bit more, um, there is, of course, the website. You can check out thecuriosityapproach.com, but of course, contact the guys at Charger English School. What's the best way of reaching out to you, Siobhan? We have a very lively um, Instagram page for Charger English School oh. and for Charger English School Foundation, which Eve manages. <laughs> and it shows the daily learning experiences I of our that. children. Pop 
proper insights. If I'll find that on Instagram for you. If you do want any information, just message me with the word school and I will send you the link. Both, thank you so much. Thank you. I know you have long days as teachers, so I really do appreciate <laughs> you coming in and adding a few more hours to your day here at Dubai Eye. When we hear the word bullying, we immediately think of the schoolyard or perhaps maybe some social media platforms now since it is 2023. But what about in the workplace? Now, the organisational costs of you know, toxicity are so well documented, but bullying at work is still a significant problem. Looking at the states, an estimated 48.6 million Americans or about 30% of the workforce are bullied at work. In India, that percentage reported even higher, 46 or even 55%, depending on the study. In Germany, it's lower. Um, But yet bullying receives very little attention or indeed effective action when it comes to us adults. So we're turning our attentions to it here on Dubai I-103.8. Already a number of you getting in touch with questions and concerns and circumstances, really, that you want us to address. And joining us to address just that, we've got Dr. Kieran Hillier, Assistant Professor of Psychology at Heriot-Watt University in Dubai, and her colleague, we've got Greg uh, Fandham here, Assistant Professor of Psychology, who also teaches courses on leadership and organisation culture in the Master's Degree in Business Psychology. And I really like the idea of... I guess that organisation culture, because I'm curious when a toxic work environment becomes just totally perpetuated. Um, Can I ask you, Dr. Kieran, to maybe give us some examples of what might constitute workplace bullying so we can hear a little bit about some of the things that you've come across professionally here in Dubai and in in a previous life as well? Sure. Um, So just as with... Uh, if you're observing bullying amongst children, it's the same patterns that you might observe amongst adults as well, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, so that can include um, physical bullying, although that is less common amongst adults where it's actually sort of pushing and shoving each other. More commonly, you see emotional bullying. So it's name calling, it's making snide comments, um, highlighting preferences or features of the person in a way that's meant to embarrass them, um, undermining their work, uh, taking credit for work um, that that other person did. Uh, So it can be very variable. And I think um, Greg can certainly attest to this, whereby that can be what makes it so difficult for people to to determine, well, is this, am I just misinterpreting this? Exactly, exactly. So Greg, what about that? Because when it comes to bullying in children, we think about it being a sustained pattern of behaviour. Is that the case in adults as well? It would it would have to be with adults because the bullying is a sustained pattern. That's the point about it. There's lots of isolated incidents that people could identify and say that I was given too much work or I was ignored, which happens to us all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it becomes a pattern of interconnected um behaviours, then then you've got a problem. And then you've got something which you might call bullying. It's the interconnection and the repetition which is what makes it into a problem. So can I ask then about what really might be going on in a bully's head? Because as uh, Dr. Kieran kind of alluded to there with, with children, you know, we, we start to look at the whys. You know, is that child having a tough time at home? Are they being bullied by other people and this is a release for them? What about in us adults and especially in the workplace? Well, there have been studies which suggested that um, <coughs> certain kinds of bully leaders, um, for that, it's attributable to their, their upbringing. Um, I don't think that's so much what we're concerned with. What we're more interested in is the culture itself. Mm-hmm. And there are some cultures which are which focus on people being able to do their job well and, and to relate to each other. But a lot of organisational cultures really focus on um, making it, well, setting up a situation where you're worried about your survival. Oh, goodness and, me. And, and so it's a defensive culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and those defensive cultures tend to break down into two types. 
aspects. One is where people are aggressive uh, as part of their defence, and the other is where people are still aggressive, but they smile while they're doing it. What's and worse? I those, don't know. <laughs> for the listeners at home, I'm doing a smile. A really creepy smile. A creepy false <laughs> smile. And a creepy false smile is really what the <clears throat> what that's about. And, and those kind of uh, cultures are the ones which, which make... Um, that kind of leadership, bullying leadership, something which people feel comfortable with. And as presumably, leaders. you'll have leaders recruiting people whose values might mirror their own, and it becomes this cycle of this toxic workplace that can presumably can be very hard to break. There is a tendency to do that, yeah, and mm. so the culture perpetuates itself. Also, there's a tendency <laughs> to do the opposite to to, uh, to hire people who are going to be subservient and mm. not going to complain. That's interesting. So, in terms of power plays as well, and can I ask you then, <coughs> Doctor, about when is it when is it a power play and when is it you know maybe a clash of personalities mm. and when is it bullying oh yeah well i think as as greg mentioned it it is about the sustainability of it so how consistently this is done and then the other part you would look at is what is the the intent behind mm. the behavior um because then on the one hand you've got a leader who might have communicated in a way that they're kind of used to and was the culture at their previous workplace and now they've come somewhere else and that form of communication is it's just not, not hitting not the mark. Okay. Yeah. So then you've got to look at it from that perspective and then from the receiver, it's like how am I interpreting this um, and is that due to my own expectations around how um, workplace communications should, in inverted commas, happen. So it can be a mismatch there. And so if you have identified, you know, if, if HR, for example, is exploring an accusation and it's going well by all accounts from hear, hearing it from other people that the person's worked with, um, how their typical communication style is, why they said that particular thing. It might have been in order to give the person constructive criticism because they're looking forward to developing this person and they want to give him more responsibility. But in order to do that, this certain area of development needs to be targeted. But then that person's perceiving it as you doing that in front of the rest of the team. Yes. I felt humiliated in that. And so then it's going, oh, okay, well then, I'm going to keep that in mind because the intent for doing that was so that everybody was on board and I was being trans very transparent in my leadership style around that everyone's going to be held to the same standards. But now that I know that, then can I adapt to that or do I still continue to do that even though I know that that makes you uncomfortable? That's really interesting because that takes a level of emotional intelligence that mm. not everybody possesses. Talking about the workplace now, specifically toxic work environment, bullying even, with Greg Fantham. He is Assistant Professor of Psychology. He also teaches courses of leadership and organisational culture in the Master's Degree in Business Psychology there at Harriet Watt and also joined by Dr. Killinia. She is a fantastic um, kind of voice of reason and insights across all sorts of different industries. Now, I find your, your other jobs really, really interesting because tell us a little bit about where else you've worked, Dr. Kieran. Oh, um, so I've worked in, my background is in forensic psychology, so my first job out of university was in a maximum security prison, um, working with serious offenders, and then I worked in a high security forensic hospital. Um, so these are people who are found not guilty of, by reason of mental illness. So fascinating. Well, I have to say we've had lots of messages on this topic of workplace bullying, and I think sometimes it's those microaggressions that you think... Hmm, the tone of the email, am I interpreting that correctly or not? But Greg, just how bad can this get with some really alarming data that's come out of other parts of the world with workplace bullying having devastating consequences? I think, well, I think 
people need to take it seriously. That's the uh, the main thing. And it's not just um, leaders who need to take it seriously, but also the person who's being bullied. Because I think sometimes you tend to underestimate it. You think, oh, is, Downplay it, is, it. is it me? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you need to, first of all, check with others and say, well, ask other people what happens in their workplaces. And um, they might say, well, yeah, it happens to me all the time and we're all doing that. So, you, okay. And then others might say, what? What's going on? And so you start to think about um, you know, what it is. But also take it seriously because it can kill you. Um, we go back to um, uh, tele- France Telecom um, and the case there of uh, back between 2007, 2009, 35 people committed suicide um, because of the way they were treated by their bosses. And they nobody hit anybody. Um, it was all done through repetitive bullying. And they were just moved to places they didn't want to move to. They were given jobs they couldn't handle. They were put in situations where they had to fail. They were constantly being threatened to being sacked. All of these things were factors which the, the CEOs brought into play in order to make these people move jobs. They wanted mm-hmm. to cut down the workforce. Two of them are in prison for that now, Good. Um, but uh, only 10 years later. Which leads me to ask, are there any industries in particular or roles that perhaps can... I don't want to say encourage, but certainly foster um, a toxic environment and certainly workplace bullies. Had a message here from a former student of yours, Mustafa, saying, (laughs) I love Dr. Greg, just tuned in to hear him speak. I knew it was him. His insights are fascinating. He says, I think it's worse than sales departments. Are you in in agreement there with your former student? (laughs) Of course. Um, (laughs) He's very well educated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's a book, I can't remember who wrote it, called The Accidental Sales Manager. And um, what 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 it's about is the the way in which people get promoted beyond their level of competence because um, you're very good at selling, for example, in a sales force. So you get promoted to become a manager. And of Mm. course, you you don't know what to do. Yeah, you're moving away from the skill that you'd developed in the first place. That's right. And so you fall back on on fairly visceral responses to things, which in in a sales force will tend to be competitive and aggressive. Mm. And so that'll be the way that you'll tend to operate your management of of your people. A message here from Abu Bakr saying, if we treat bullying at a young age, could we solve it for the future workplace, i.e. are adult bullies? Were they bullies as kids? I mean, certainly past behaviour is the best predictor of future behaviour. So if a child is showing um, bullying tendencies and, and characteristics, then there is a risk that unless that gets addressed, then it's going to keep going. Um, and certainly if that gets reinforced, like I get what I want by treating people in this particular way, then it becomes kind of adaptive. It would make sense. Well, of course I would keep doing this. So I think it is important for us to be addressing that. But feeding back into what Greg was saying, it's also very much about the organisational culture that someone is coming mm-hmm. into, whereby they might have never really adopted that sort of um, approach before, but they feel like because of the competitive nature of it or the hostility, um, then I need to be doing this. It's either a sink or swim sort of scenario mm. they find themselves in. Let's go to the text line, anonymous message here. And don't forget, if you are getting into it with any questions for our experts, you can, of course, leave your name off. And I understand, especially in these circumstances, wanting anonymity. No name saying we have a really nasty guy at work and it is a sales environment. <laughs> I think the only reason they keep him around is because he earns the company a lot of money. He's a truly toxic, horrible person who makes snidey comments about personal appearance, ability and swears a lot. I love my job apart from him, but he's starting to make it a miserable environment. And I think that's exactly it. it might just not I mean it might just be like a one-on-one. Mm. Some people have the power to, you know, poison the well, really. How can this listener perhaps, Greg, protect him or herself from the nature of this person? And indeed, what would you recommend? I think the starting point is, as I say, to take it seriously. Mm. Um, and so you're being abused. 
Um, however, you're well aware there's a power relationship which is making it difficult for you to, to move this person. Um, take it seriously enough to think about moving. That's, one, that's, one, that's, that's the first thing. Um, you know, as I say, people die in these circumstances. Well-being and survival are connected for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And so don't just, don't just put yourself down and think in terms of, oh, I'm worried about my well-being because this, this person is unpleasant. Consider, consider that the, more, the longer lasting implications of all this. If you love your job, maybe doing the job somewhere else would be a better bet. But isn't that them winning? Isn't that, this, you know, that's, isn't that just how the toxic environment is going to continue? There are ways of, of, of responding. I mean, there's one way of responding is to, to talk to others and to be collective about it. But it can be very difficult in many workplaces. Mm-hmm. It's got to be realistic. Um, it's very easy to say, yes, join together and so on. Well, especially if there's no unions, which, you know, where exactly, is, yes. is not, not the case here. Yes. I think I would probably add that um, if you've got that evidence for it, would be to approach HR. Uh, mm. Well, and again, depending on the on the structure. So if this is one of your, because it sounds like he's a peer rather than necessarily a manager. Um, so if that's the case, you know, talking to your manager. Um, and my advice, if I'm working with a client who has these sort of difficulties, is like the more um, specific examples and pieces of evidence you've got of that so documenting things so that you can show that this is a pattern that it's not a one-off and you are blowing that out of proportion quote unquote um, but that this is a systematic thing that's happening if that doesn't work then it might be going to HR and then seeing the response from again the organization whereby what is their priorities would they rather prioritize someone who makes them money even if it makes everyone else in the workplace uncomfortable then that would tell you about a do lot I about wanna, the values do of that I company. Do I want to stay here? But then I guess more personally, it would be about having a look at that relationship and how much do I actually need to interact with this person? So it might be if most of the time I can get by just corresponding with this person over email, I don't need to be talking with them face to face, then that might be my approach. Mm-hmm. Or if I am, like I would rather the impact that he has on me, if I'm going to talk to him then do I want to have someone else in the room with me? And so then I'll approach them in a more public space because he tends not to do this as much than if we're just meeting each other one-on-one. Play the player. Yeah, like <laughs> know know what your own triggers are because if you want to make it work because you otherwise enjoy the space. But I do think um, taking it seriously, as Greg said, and, and raising it to the people who can do something about it because for all you know, five other people have already raised this and so they could be sort of slowly accumulating a case in order to approach this person because often that's the tricky thing. Every incident on its own can feel quite innocuous mm-hmm. and like, oh, I'm just exaggerating or I'm going to look like the person who can't handle it. But if you see, oh, no, okay, this, is, this isn't just one person, this is coming from a few people, then it might be that they are in the middle of doing something and your additional contribution could help um, create some actual change. Get something over the line. Mm. A message from H saying, what if it's the boss or manager who is the bully? Mm. Greg, one for you, I think, given your work around uh, company cultures. Well, that's what I was, I was suggesting there, that actually workarounds is probably one of the best approaches. You just find various ways of working around working around the problem. Um, there, is, there is this problem of, 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 of leaders, and I think partly maybe we need to think about how we can help out the leader a bit. Um, by that I mean that we do almost unconsciously tend to uh, shovel our responsibilities for each other onto the leader. 
we um, and there's a, there's a great uh, case study of uh, an conductorless orchestra in the United States called uh, Orpheus, and they got rid of their conductor about 30 years ago, and as a consequence, they learned a lot about what they weren't doing with each other before, that they had to talk to each other in a more uh, sensible way. They had to listen to each other mm -hmm. in ways they hadn't done before, and they had to know when to shut up. Um, all of those things were things which they previously left the conductor to decide for them. So in some ways, maybe working around and working with each other to do some of the things that maybe you're shoveling onto the leader that you didn't realise they were having mm. to deal with. Guys, thank you so much. Really fascinating. And judging by the number of messages we've had, which we haven't been able to get to today, clearly a significant problem. Um, so please do take heed to the advice of our fantastic experts this afternoon, joining us here from Harry University here in Dubai. Our neighbours just around the corner, Dr. Kieran Hillier mm -hmm. and Greg Fantham. Guys, thank you so, so much. Really, really appreciate your time. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.